0: Have your Bible this morning, turn again to the book of Philippians to chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And this morning we're going to consider carefully verses 5 and 6. And as we do, I want to ask a question of you this morning, and that is this. Who is it that brings you joy in life? Who is it that brings you joy in life? I imagine many of us could stand and say, well, our family does, whether it's our husband our wife or our children or our our grandchildren. But as we consider this passage again this morning, let me ask you, what about the people of God? What about your church family? Do they bring you joy? And that starts with Considering in your own heart your love, your care, your concern, and your affection for your church family. Because as we're going to see here with Paul, as we're going to see in other places in Philippians, that they were the joy of his heart. In fact, if you looked over in chapter 2, verse 2 for a moment, you would see he would tell them, make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. Fulfill my joy. Or over in chapter 4 in verse 1. He says, therefore my beloved brethren whom I long to see my joy and crown. Speaking of them as though they were his joy. For Paul, the people of God, were his joy. And the reason why they were his joy is because of his affection for them, his love for them. As I said, his care, his concern for their well-being. Primarily their spiritual well-being, but not exclusively, also because of his concern for their physical well-being. I know that because if you look over in chapter 2 for a moment, look at Philippians chapter 2 for just a moment, where He is telling them in verse 25 that he thought it was necessary to send back to them a man by the name of Epaphroditus who is my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Paul there is saying that he knew if, if, because of the sickness that Epaphroditus was suffering with, and if it actually would have led to his death, that this would have brought overwhelming sorrow in his heart. So that's because... Epaphroditus, a fellow brother, a fellow worker in the cause of Christ from the church at Philippi was his joy. And when he was struggling physically, it was bringing sorrow to his heart. It was bringing sorrow to the heart of the people back there at Philippi. Because as it says there in verse 26, he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. He knew that they were concerned about him. He knew that some of their joy wasn't as it should be because of his sickness. So you see this idea where our joy is tied with one another. But it's not just our physical well-being. But it is our spiritual well-being because Paul had sorrow in his heart. Not just when someone was physically struggling, but when they were spiritually struggling. If you will for a moment. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. He says, but I determined this for my own sake that I would not come to you in sorrow again. For if I cause you sorrow, who then makes me glad? You notice their spiritual well-being here is tied into his gladness and his joy or his sorrow. But the one whom I have made sorrowful, this is the very thing I wrote to you so that when I came, I would not have sorrow from those who ought to make me rejoice. Having confidence in you, all that my joy would be the joy of you all. See, Paul here is concerned in the, with the church at Corinth that he's not going to have the joy that he so desires because they are not responding to the gospel. They're not responding to the truth that he's already shared with them. And because they aren't responding as they should, he's afraid that when he shows back up again, he's going to have sorrow instead of joy for all of them because some of them aren't living as they should be living. In fact, if you go over, stay in 2 Corinthians and go over to chapter 7 for a moment. You'll get an idea of what he's talking about, about the sorrow. Beginning in verse 6, he says, But God, who comforts the depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us, your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Now notice what he says in verse 8. but though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I did not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice now that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Continues on here just speaking about his rejoicing in them. And notice again what he's trying to get across. He had written them a letter. You can even say he had written them First Corinthians. They had received that letter and it had brought some sorrow in their heart and he wanted it to bring sorrow, a true genuine sorrow over their sin so that it would bring them to the point of repentance. Paul's joy was not as it should have been when it came to the church at Corinth because they had so much sin and things that were going on there that they weren't dealing with in their own heart and in the body of Christ there. And that's why he says, look, I'm not sorry that I wrote you a letter that caused you to be sorrowful. Because you needed to be sorrowful. The joy. So my point is we're going to come this morning and go back to Philippians chapter 1. Is that as we're looking here at Paul's personal prayer. He's praying for the church at Philippi. And we talked about that last Sunday and, and one of the things we said is that his his prayer was pleasurable. It was joyful. And we're going to see why that really is here in verse 5 and 6 this morning. It's because of the joy of the assurance of their salvation. And I hope that what you will glean from this today as a believer is that your joy should be tied To one another. That's why he can say, as he's speaking there in verse 4 about always offering prayer with joy. How is it he can always offer prayer with joy and my every prayer for you all? Well, he tells them how in verse 5 and 6. Because of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, and that I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So let's look at this together this morning. And let's see this joy that is in the heart of Paul that manifests itself in his prayers for the believers here at Philippi. The first reason why it is that he has such joy in his heart when he prays for them is because of their fellowship in the gospel. Or you could say it, because of their participation in the gospel. Look again at verse 5. This is because of your participation in the gospel. That idea of a participation really is the same word if you go over and look over in chapter 2 and you look in verse 1 where it says if there is any fellowship of the Spirit. It's the same word. It speaks of fellowship. It speaks of Partnership. It speaks of co-laboring together. It speaks of serving together. It speaks of joining together. And notice again, think about this. These are people, if you go back and look in Acts chapter 16, this church was founded by people who were coming from different backgrounds. You started off with a woman by the name of Lydia in her household. And then you come to a jailer in his household. You had this girl, the slave girl that was there, that was under the possession of the Spirit of devil nation that Paul helps to deliver her and others. The gospel just spread there. There are people coming from, a, from various backgrounds, various beliefs, various understandings. The, the woman Lydia had a totally different understanding about religion than the jailer did. And yet they both got saved and when they got saved they came into fellowship. They came into partnership in the gospel This idea of fellowshipping, this idea is partnering in the gospel. They were financially supporting Paul in the gospel. They were verbally sharing the gospel. They were physically serving and suffering for the cause of the gospel. They were gathered together because of the gospel. And that's very important to remember that. Because, beloved, that's what a church body is. A church body, a local church, is just simply made up of believers that are there in participation and in partnership in the gospel to fellowship together. And notice, it's about the gospel. It's not going to be about politics. It's not going to be about social causes. It's not going to be about sports. It's not going to be about our felt needs being met or us being entertained. It's going to be about the gospel that we are joining together for the gospel. It's about the good news of being justified in the sight of God by faith alone to the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. You see, beloved, this is, this is missing far too often in the minds of pastors and the minds of God's people. They're, they're missing this because they think that, that we're here to gather about ourselves. And we're here to gather for the sake of the gospel. It's not about whether my felt need is met today, it's not about whether your felt need is met today. It's about we're here fellowshipping in regards to the gospel. Now notice something else. This is going to be striking. But notice about this fellowship. That it is church wide. It is church wide. What do you mean church wide? I'm saying it is every single person, believer, who is a member of the church at Philippi. They're all participating in the gospel. Remember what he said back in verse 1? He's writing this to all the saints in Christ who are living in Philippi. If you were a believer living in Philippi, guess what? You were a part of this church and you were participating in the gospel. There was no such thing as Christians in the city of Philippi who were not a part of the church and you were not a part of participating in the gospel. There was no such thing. This is why Paul had such joy and this is even the difference between how he can be so joyful here with the church at Philippi and we just read a moment ago in 2 Corinthians where there was some sorrow in his heart. Why? Because there were some that were part of the church at Corinth that weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. They weren't really living in the gospel. They weren't really participating in the gospel and this brought sorrow to his heart. But he has joy here for the church at Philippi because notice he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, for everyone that is there. It's only right for me, he says in verse 7, for me to feel this way about you all. Beloved, I want to bring that to your attention because in some sense, our joy would be somewhat tempered. Because we couldn't say this. We couldn't say that we all who are part of this church are participating in the gospel. How could we say that? How could we say that if there's 400 people who are part of our church and about 100 are showing up? That means that 75% are not participating in the gospel. They're not fellowshipping in the gospel. So that robs us of some of the joy that we should have and the care and the concern that should be there. Paul has this joy in his heart as he thinks about this church because they are so faithful, just participating, fellowshipping in the gospel And notice he says, from the first day until now. I mean, this is a long-lasting participation. As I said, this is years. Years have gone by since that first day. Years have gone by. And they're still all just marching forward, participating in the gospel. Paul has such joy because of that because of what he knew about this church. But now let's move down to verse 6 for a moment. It wasn't just what he knew about them that brought joy in his heart when he prayed for them. It's what he knew about God. And here's what he knew. He had joy in his heart when he prayed for them because of their fellowship in the gospel, but also, beloved, because of the faithfulness of God. Because of the promise of God in regards to their salvation. Because as he says there in verse 6, For I am confident of this very thing. What is he so confident about? He is confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. What's he saying there? He's simply just saying that he knows because of their continued participation in the gospel from the first day until now that God is the one who started this work in them. And he knows this about God. What God starts, God finishes. If God starts the work of salvation, he finishes that work of salvation. God is not like us. Where we could probably all go to each other's house and walk around and see unfinished projects. Things that we started but we never finished. We never have quite gotten around to them. That's not the way God operates, especially when it comes to salvation. If God starts that work of salvation, we're going to see what that is here in a moment. If he begins that work, he says, I am confident of this. If he began that work in you, he will complete it. He will bring it to completion. So let's think about this for a moment, what he's saying about our salvation. He's saying our salvation doesn't start with us, it starts with God. Now listen carefully about that. If if our salvation started with us, then yes, it would be dependent upon us to sustain it, to keep it. And to complete it. But that's not what the Bible says. That's not what Paul is saying here. He is saying it was God who started it. It is God who is sustaining it. It is God who's going to bring it to completion. That's why he has the confidence that he does. That's why he can write over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 30 and 31 That it is by his doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. In fact, just think about what he's saying here. He who began a good work in you. If you will for a moment, go back to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16. Because this is where this work began. We can go back and look at it in Acts chapter 16 for a moment. And it started with God actually sending Paul to them. Remember we talked about this. Paul was wanting to go to different places. But God kept stopping him. And then in verse 9, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You'll go down to verse 12. He says in verse 11, he put out the sea from Troas. And in verse 12, it says, from there to Philippi. Which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in the city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled there. So it started with God giving a vision to Paul. Paul obeying that vision, going there. He's now in the city of Philippi. He's speaking there the truth and the gospel to some women who are assembled there by the riverside. And again, we're going to see it is God that's going to begin this work of salvation because it says in verse 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. Again, she's listening to Paul listening to him speak, and no doubt speaking about Christ and the things of Christ and their need of salvation. And it says there, the Lord opened her heart. You see, salvation started with the Lord. The Lord opened her heart so that she would respond to the things she was hearing from Paul. She was hearing the gospel. She was hearing scripture being taught and explained and proclaimed to her. And as she's sitting there, she's sitting there with this closed heart. And God opens her heart so that she can respond and come to Christ. You look down, go down to... uh, the jailer. And the jailer, no doubt, has been sitting there, beginning in verse 25, listening to Paul and Silas. They're praying. They're singing hymns of praises to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And I have no doubt the jailer was listening to them because when the earthquake came and the foundations of the prison house were shaken and the doors were, were rocked open and all the chains were unfastened, you would have thought that all of those prisoners would have got up and overtaken this jailer and ran out for their freedom. But not one of them got up because they had been sitting there listening to the praises and the prayers of Paul. No doubt in that is gospel-saturated praises and prayers. And whenever... This happens and and Paul says don't harm yourself because we're all here. He comes running in and says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the reason why he says that is the same reason why if you go back to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when Peter was proclaiming Jesus Christ to them, to the Jews of that day, it says they were pierced to their hearts. And when they were pierced to their heart, they came running and saying, Then brethren, what shall we do? This is what's going on here. He's been listening to them, and then the, the earthquake happens, and they come running to Paul. He runs to Paul, the prisoner, and says, What might I do to be saved? Why would he even been bringing up about being saved unless he's been hearing that from Paul? Paul's been speaking to him. It is God that has brought that conviction, that piercing of his heart. It is God that brought that opening of the heart of Lydia. This is the same way God did it, remember, for Peter. Remember over in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 16 and verses 13 through 18, where Jesus is asking his disciples, Who do people say that I am? and when he's asking that question some say, some say you're John the Baptist some say you're the great prophet some say you're Jeremiah he says but who do you say that I am and they say, Peter says you are the son you are the Christ the son of the living God and what did Jesus say to him blessed are you Simon Barjona because flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you it was my father who revealed that to you that is Peter you didn't just figure that out on your own it was God who revealed him to you. That's why you can make that confession. That's why Lydia could come and offering faith and truth, faith to God through Christ. That's why this jailer pierced to his heart was responding in faithful obedience of faith in Christ. As Jesus even says over in the Gospel of John in chapter 6 and verses 44 and 45 where he says no one can come to me unless what the Father draws him. And then he says right after that in verse 45 where he says everyone that the Father teaches and they learn comes to him. This is what he's speaking about. The salvation, it starts with God. If God begins that work All well, the glory goes to God. But notice, go back to chapter 1 in Philippians. Let's learn some more about our salvation. It's not just that it started, began with God, but notice where God begins it. Notice where this salvation, where this work of God is taking place in our lives. It's taking place on the inside. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you. He begins that work in you. Now think about what we read a moment ago over in Acts chapter 16 about Lydia. The Lord opened her heart. Her heart, that's, that's the inner person. That's the one that's on, that's the, the real you on the inside. What does the Bible tell us in Romans chapter 10 and verses 9 and 10? Yes, you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, but you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. If you believe in your heart then you will result in righteousness. If you confess with your mouth, it will result in salvation. It is a a work that goes on in the heart of a person. That's why we're told in Hebrews 4.12 it is the word of the living God that's able to sink down to the very depths of your soul and judge the thoughts and the intents of your heart. And you need that and I need that and every one of us need that. Why? Because the Bible also tells us in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 and in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 21 that every intent of the thoughts of the heart of a man are only evil continually. So if that is the condition of our heart, beloved, we need to happen to us what happened there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in verse 25 where it says the ungifted, that is the unbeliever, comes into the worship service and as they're sitting there hearing the, the prophecies of the word of God being declared, it says the secrets of their heart are disclosed to them. It's opened up before them. So they they need to respond by genuine faith as the jailer did in his household, as Lydia did in her household. But this work that God does, beloved, God works from the inside out, not the outside in. God's not looking for... Or asking for anyone to go get their life straight, go get their life together, change their behavior, and then come back to him. No, he's saying come to him, and change your heart, let him give you a new heart that will love him, that will believe in him, that will trust in him, and then through that work on the inside, it begins to manifest itself in your life on the outside. You think about again Romans 10, 9 and 10. The inside and outside are working together, you believe it in your heart, you confess it with your mouth. What comes out of you should be what's coming from inside of you. That's why Jesus got on to the Pharisees so much. They were so worried about keeping all the rules and regulations and all their traditions. And and, and they were so worried about that they were going to come and somehow eat something in a way that their their hands were dirty and defile themselves and Jesus said it's not what's on the outside guys that's the problem, what's on the inside, yes, that's the problem what's in your heart your heart is the problem so this work started with on the inside, it's in you it's where God starts opening our heart now it does lead to A changed life. And this is a part of that work that God continues. It does lead to a changed life. Go again back to Philippians 1. Which says, he who began a good work in you will perfect it. And which tells you this. That in some sense what God started when he saved you was not the end. That's not the end of it. Now, you have to be careful when you consider this. Very careful. You have to be eternally careful. Because there are those who are going to say, yes, that's why God begins this work, if you want to say, of salvation, this work of justification, but now you have to keep working it out, justifying yourself. That's not what Paul's teaching here. Paul is teaching that if you've genuinely been saved and a person's genuinely been saved and they've been justified in the sight of God and God began that work of salvation, he will keep working in their life, sanctifying them, making them more like Christ. You see, there's three aspects to our salvation. The beginning is there when God immediately, instantly declares us right with him. When he saves us, he forgives us, he cleanses us, you are justified in his sight by faith alone. It is by faith alone. But he goes on to say there that what he began, he he will perfect it until. Which means that so long as we're living in this life, beloved, I am saved, but I'm not perfect. I'm still a sinner. In fact, if you look over Philippians chapter 3 for a moment, look over in Philippians 3, where Paul says in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, now that's the difference. If God has begun that good work in you, whereby he has... Saved you. He's justified you in His sight. That He's declared you a sinner, right and righteous before Him. If He has done that, He's also given you a heart that wants to now love Him, serve Him, and lay hold of Christ. Saying, Christ laid hold of me, Paul says, for the purpose of me wanting to lay hold of Him. That is, for me to pursue Christ. If there's no desire in our hearts to pursue Christ, and that's telling us that Christ hasn't laid hold of us yet, that means that work of God in your heart hasn't taken place. That's what he's getting across to them. If God began this good work, he's continuing to work, and he will work it out till the end. In fact, if you look over Philippians chapter 2, In verse 13, he says, It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God, for believers, is working in them. He began a work in them. He's continuing that work in them. And he will never let that person go. Now, we're going to see when we get over to that chapter that you and I are responsible before God. To work out our own salvation. But yet, it, we notice it is still God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So, as long as you're in this life, God is still working on you as a believer. And notice, when will this be complete? When will this work be complete? Go back to verse 6. He began a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus is referring to the day of Christ coming for the church. As Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, listen to this, it's very similar to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 7 he says you're not lacking in any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is this work taking place until the day of Christ that is until the day that Jesus comes for the church because beloved whether you're dead or you're alive that's when it will be complete in this sense if you go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 what you find out there is is that it says when Jesus comes back for the church that's when the dead in Christ are going to be raised and there's going to be that is there's going to be a physical resurrection and their, their body and their spirit are going to be reunited and glorified and those who are here that are still alive that are believers at the coming of Christ they're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye in a moment just like that and they're going to be glorified and that's what God is doing and he will complete that work until the day of Christ Jesus when body and soul are perfect and glorified and able to love God perfectly and without sin this is what God has promised And this is why Paul is so excited. This is why Paul can pray for them for such joy in his heart. Every prayer he lifts up for them because he knows that what God started in their life, God will finish it. God's not going to let anyone slip out of his fingers. No one slips out. No one gets out. They're all safe and secure in the hands of God. What God has done, God will finish If you stop and you think about it, beloved, think about salvation. Look, there's no no turning back. There's no reversal of that because, you think about it, God says, the Bible says, that when a person is saved, they become a new person. They become a new creature. They have a new heart, a new disposition. They have the Spirit of God living inside of them. For somebody to lose that and to lose their salvation means all that has to be reversed. The spirit has to depart from them. It means also this new heart has to be replaced back again with their old heart. Now all these things have to come back to them. Nowhere is the Bible going to teach that. Now the Bible is going to teach there are some people that are going to come and seem like they're a part of it, but they're really not. And that's what we struggle with. That's what I struggle with when trying to help people and think about that for people. And it doesn't mean here that even as a believer, we can't struggle sometimes as a true believer and struggle and sin and and do some things we shouldn't be doing. It doesn't mean there aren't some sins that just seem to keep clinging to us, hanging on to us, that we can't seem to shake and to get rid of and to put to death as we so desire. But beloved, there will be that that desire in your heart to want to put it away because God is at work in you, and if God is at work in you, if He began that good work he's still working and if he's working he's working in a way that is moving you to want to put to death your sin and put on the Lord Jesus Christ That's what Paul is driving at so let me just ask you this morning has God done that work of salvation in you If he has, then there should be this desire to participate in the gospel. To put off sin, to put on righteousness, Christ likeness. Is God doing a work in you? But even as believers, I hope one of the things that you walk away with about this is one, that you're excited and you're encouraged to know I'm not perfect. And I sin and I struggle and I can fall on my face and I can mess up. But I know God's done a work in me and I know God's doing a work in me and I know God's working in my life right now and I have the assurance that what God has started, He will complete. I will never lose it. It was never dependent upon me. It was always dependent upon Him. It started with Him. It's sustained by Him. It will be completed by Him. I can rest in that and not rest in that and say, okay, then I can just go out and live the way I want to live. No. You you rest in that knowing I want to pursue Christ. That's what should hope, I hope happens for you, but also this. I hope also you're thinking about it in this way. Do you find joy in others in the body of Christ? In your care and your concern and your affections for them? And do you see that your life is either going to be a source of joy or a source of sorrow in the lives of other people. See, we, we, especially here in America, we've got this individualized idea about salvation. And it is personally between you and God. But, beloved, your walk with God is not just about you. It's about others as well. And you see, I hope you see now that your life and how you participate in the gospel will either bring joy to people or it could bring sorrow to people. And that you want to be a source of joy. So consider your life, your desires, your your fellowshipping in the gospel, your faithfulness in the gospel. And are you bringing joy to those around you? I want to ask you for a moment to bow your head in prayer.